affairs podcast that asks, what else is happening in the world? I'm Essie Cup. So you've heard of it, the Mueller report. It's still dominating the news coverage more than a week after it wrapped up. And I'm sure it will keep making headlines, but not necessarily for the right reasons. While both parties are, are fighting over redactions and transparency and what qualifies as obstruction and collusion, what meets the level of, of criminal liability, who will get subpoenaed. seems like everyone's glossing over one of the most important conclusions from the probe, that Russia meddled in the 2016 election. Now, in his letter to Congress, Attorney General Barr confirmed this fact once again, writing that the special counsel determined Russia executed a two-pronged strategy to influence our elections, a plot that involved Russian military officers and that infamous hacking of emails from the Clinton campaign and the Democratic Party. So why isn't everyone talking about this angle? Isn't Russia's election interference the whole reason this investigation even exists? And what's more, the Russians aren't done. They're not done trying to manipulate our democratic system. Intelligence agencies have repeatedly warned that they will try to do it again in 2020. And in fact, the Washington Post just reported that two former top CIA officials have compiled briefing books for the 2020 candidates, all 2,000 of them, to help them combat foreign election interference this time around. But will it work? And in light of all this, is the current administration doing enough to secure American elections? Now, on my CNN show, SE Cup Unfiltered, a few days ago, I spoke to former FBI counterintelligence operative Eric O'Neill about this very issue. But there's so much more to dig into on the topic that I did not have time for on the show that I, I needed to have him back for this podcast. So Eric joins me once again. He is author of the brand new book, Gray Day, My Undercover Mission to Expose America's First Cyber Spy. And believe me, Eric, I'm going to fangirl about that book in a minute. But first, I need to get more of your thoughts on what's currently happen, happening. So tell me from your vantage, having, consider, having done considerable uh, counterintelligence work on Russian spying, the, the Russian election meddling story, how, how serious was what they did in 2016? It's easy to feel like, well, I don't know, these were Facebook bots. And it's hard for us to sort of wrap our heads around what exactly they did. Right. Well, Effie, it is great to be on Weekend Warriors. I want to say that first. Thank you. Uh, and, you know, just to start right in on this, it is very serious. And one thing that concerns me quite a bit is that seriousness uh, has been lost in the political swirl yeah. around the Mueller investigation and, and everything you just, um, you just stated. The most important part of that investigation it isn't the, the collusion narrative, although, you know, it's critical to run that down and, and make sure that did or didn't happen. Uh, we have to know that. But more importantly, uh, the fact that there was sufficient evidence in that investigation to not only point the finger at Russia for those cyber attacks against the 2016 election, and that's, those are attacks against the American people, yeah. uh, but to indict. To, to send information to the DOJ who was able to indict by name 12 Russian intelligence officers working for the Russian military intelligence unit, the GRU. That's very significant. And, uh, you know, and, and I've been making comments lately that I would love to see all the, all the intelligence parts of that report, the stuff that 
we are not going to see because it will be eventually redacted um, for the American public. But just exactly how they were able to run down the, the actual names of those people, that would be fascinating. Um, so talk about the social media disinformation part of this. What, what, what exactly did they do, and how was it effective? Well, yes, so the Russians were able to stir up divisions, and they used a new term. So these cyber attacks are creating new terminology in our lexicon in the United States. We now have this thing called troll farms. So groups of individuals who are creating posts and leveraging social media. Russia has always been extraordinary at using a espionage tactic called disinformation or what they call compromise. Right. And what that is, is it's the science of stirring up divisions wherever they are. We're at a time, and we have been for quite some time here in the U.S., of very serious political divisions, but also not just our politics, but on many different lines, um, racial um, differences in the sexes. And where Russia can stir that up, they will. And exploiting social media makes it very easy. what's, What's their... What's their motivation in doing that? Are they just trying to be disruptive? What, what do they gain from all of that? Well, they've done it forever. Uh, the Russians have always meddled this way. Uh, you know, as early as the 80s, Russia created, and, you know, and I talk about this in grade A, it's, it's really fascinating. They created an entire body of research that suggested that the United States intelligence was you had created the AIDS epidemic and was spreading it, right? They, they created this whole series of research, which was completely false, and then seeded it through media in order to try to get the story out around the world and make us look bad. And there are many other examples of attacks like that. Um, leveraging social media makes this extraordinarily easy for the Russians because they can create the stories, and we look at them on social media, and when we're not looking at... at Real news outlets, some of this can be fake. And fake news truly comes from the idea of fake stories that are seeded in social media. So what do they want to do? They want to create divisions. In 2016, they were leveraging uh, the attacks and the stories that they were pushing out. Some of them, or quite a deal of them, were trying to get voters to believe that they could change the election, that, that the election could be changed, that your vote wasn't safe that somehow these attacks could lead to not only discovering who you voted for, and during a very contentious election between Trump and Hillary Clinton, I suspect there were a lot of people who were sort of holding their nose and voting on either side and probably didn't want others to know who they were secretly voting for. And so you know, we, we did this story. So I work with this company, Carbon Black. We did this study in 2016, and we conducted it of voters around the country. And when we asked the question, do you believe that the 2016 election could be affected by cyber attacks? More than half of the voters voters we talked to believe that. And one in five voters were so concerned, they said that they wouldn't vote in the election. If you extrapolate the study, that's about potential 15 million people that didn't vote in the 2016 presidential election. So Russia doesn't have to actually change a single vote with a cyber attack. They just have to make us think they can, and they start to win. The more that they can create divisions here in the United States, 
the better that they can push their agenda on a world stage. Because if we're spending all our time looking inward at ourselves and fighting with ourselves, we're not looking outward to spread democracy through the world. And that's something that America must do. So, uh, you know, considering the fact that we're, we're all talking about this now, and it's been the subject of a lot of media attention and scrutiny in Congress, investigations, does Russia react to that? Does this deter them from trying to do it again? Oh, no. <laughs> the one thing that I've learned in my career about spies is that if something works, they will continue to do it until it doesn't work again. They truly got away with this in 2016. We may have indicted 12 Russian nationals, but they're never going to see jail time. Uh, they are paraded as heroes in Russia. It's almost like a badge of honor for them to have launched these attacks. And so if you get away with it, why wouldn't you do it again? Uh, and they did. In 2018, uh, there was a foreign actor who attacked the RNCC, right? So the Republicans this time, and were able to steal thousands of emails. Now, the emails were not published on WikiLeaks like they were in the 2016 attack against the Democrats. And uh, the FBI has not officially said it was Russia or China or, or who it was, but, but that it was a foreign actor. My money is on Russia or China. Um, so this clearly is going to continue happening. It, but Russia and China have always attacked our elections. This isn't anything new. 2016 wasn't an anomaly. We have just created a new system of sharing information, storing information, collaborating with information that makes these attacks so much easier. And we're also pretty gullible as a nation. Uh, we are still uh, extraordinarily susceptible to the most basic cyber attack, the spear phishing attack. That email you get that just wants you to click on a link or open an attachment that loads the malware on your computer system, uh, that is how the majority of cyber attacks today here in the U.S. are successful. So until we, until we build cybersecurity to beat this stuff, we're going to continue to get hit. This week on Boss Files, Lando Lake CEO Beth Ford says that despite the coronavirus outbreak, farmers are still working hard to bring food to the shelves. Yeah, there's plenty of food right now, and actually farmers are still working. This is an essential industry as defined by the government, but it was actually as defined by all of us, and we know that. Tune in for the latest in our series of conversations with leaders about how they're coping with all of the uncertainty and the challenges presented by the coronavirus pandemic. Eric O'Neill. He's author of the new book, Gray Day, My Undercover Mission to Expose America's First Cyber Spy. Eric, I don't know if you can talk to this or not, but I'll ask the question anyway. Uh, I, I was recently speaking to one of my sources in defense about some of Russia's technological edges over us on the battlefield, for example, being able to jam our comms uh, systems on the battlefield. This is, you know, troubling stuff. Do you think, writ large, Russia has a technological edge over us? And, and if so, are we working to close that gap? We've been working very hard in the last number of years to close that gap. And I don't think they have a technological edge over us, per se. Hmm. I would be very worried if we had to fight a, uh, a war, a kinetic war, for example, against Russia and China. I mean, now we're, we're talking fiction, not yeah. Um, nonfiction, but l let's say it happened somehow, uh, we would be at a disadvantage because of the 
attack, the cyber attacks, critical infrastructure, and attacks on network communications that they could leverage against us. Yeah. But we're also very good, not only at defending ourselves, but at offensive cyber attacks. Remember, on election day in 2018, in November 2018, on the day of the midterm elections, um, the U.S. Cyber Command struck back against the Russians. We, we literally silenced the Internet Research Agency, which is a, which is a private company, but it's, it's tied to the Kremlin. Right. They launch all sorts of information campaign, campaigns against us. You know, the Pentagon said, we're not going to let them, we're, we're just going to proactively stop them from doing this nonsense this year, um, it, especially on the day of our elections. And they shut off the Internet for them. They took them offline. That, that made me very excited. Um, these, are, these are the sort of things that I think we need to see more of, because the Russians are certainly doing it to us. We're in the middle of a second Cold War. We have been since the day the prior Cold War ended. And it's a Cold War in, that is being fought in cyberspace. And we have to fight back. And if we don't, we are, we are eventually going to lose. Okay, I got to get to your book, um, and I'm going to fangirl for for just a minute. So you have to you have to bear with me. Um, uh, what was Robert Hansen like? What was it like working with him, both before you knew what he had done, and then after? Yeah, he was a uh, let me put it this way, an extremely difficult boss, and I and I try to be as fair as possible to Hansen in the book. Yeah. It'd be easy just to completely villainize him, and I certainly do quite a bit of that because he was a bad guy. Yeah. But if you, you take out the fact that he was the worst spy in U.S. history and all of the stress that I was under trying to find a way to catch him um, yeah. while also working against the spy to not make him feel like I was investigating him, that yeah. was a pretty tall order. He was also a creepy guy. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, we're talking a lot about harassment. And uh, especially harassment today uh, that women are, are suffering. But I was locked in a room with a guy who used it as a way to make me uncomfortable and to put me off my guard uh, just to try to get me to screw up. Uh, there's, there's one story I, t- I talk about in the book where he came behind my desk and leaned against my back and, and sort of rested his chin on my head. Um, I, you know, to look over me. And so what are you looking at on your computer? You know, <laughs> imagine how uncomfortable you'd be. I was freaked out. And, and, of course, I was then locked in this moment of, oh, right, what am I supposed to do? What does he expect me to do? What would right. someone do who isn't hunting a spy? You know, if I do the wrong thing, am I giving him information that makes him realize that this is a mousetrap, this isn't a real job? And uh, so I was almost paralyzed. And... Um, you know, the next thing I did was I, I made a phalanx of chairs around my desk so he, he couldn't walk behind it anymore. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> but, um, to our world, then I Eric. Report him to HR, or you know, in there, if there even is an HR in the FBI, I never knew. Um, yeah. uh, because you know, I, I think he would have seen that as being disloyal. So it. Uh, sure, yeah. Yeah, no, he, was, he was really tough. He, could, he was brash. He yeah. had a lot of. Um, different pet names for me. Uh, like he, he enjoyed calling me the idiot. Um, but I just sucked it up because I knew uh, that at the end of the day, um, all that made me stronger. It just gave me more incentive to, uh, to find the information I needed to catch him. You, you had done some profiling before this. Would, would, he have, would he have fit a profile of, you know, uh, a double agent, if, you know, looking back? Well, he... he defines the profile of a trusted insider. 
someone who goes rogue within an organization. And in fact, he is the case that is taught at Quantico and throughout the entire intelligence community for what you look for in a trusted insider. A, a severe narcissist who had challenged all authority, had an inflated sense of ego and sense of self-worth, um, and was, was angry and disgruntled at the FBI right. for the position he was in. And all those sort of things, especially when you add that the guy needed money, mm-hmm. can lead someone, can trigger them to become a spy. And, you know, he said it to me himself on the first day of the investigation. I'm trying to get him to talk, and I don't know how, and I'm fumbling to do it. And I, I basically learned how to catch him by learning how to do it from him. But that first day he looks at me and he says, you need to know something called Hansen's Law. And I said, okay, what's that? He said, it's this. The spy is in the worst possible place. And when he said that to me, I just kept a poker face, right? But internally, my jaw had just hit the floor. Like, right. I'm supposed to be investigating you, buddy. And you're, the first day, our first conversation, you tell me that? Like, what games <laughs> are you playing? And I, uh, I said, okay, well, boss, because I had to call him boss. I couldn't call him by his name. What does that mean? He said, the spy is in the place where they, he has access to those secrets that will do the most damage, and he knows where to sell them to make the most money. And if you're going to do counterintelligence work, you must always look for the spy in the worst possible place. And that, that conversation not only set the stage for the rest of our relationship for that entire investigation, but the entirety of my career as a, a counterintelligence operative and, and now working in cybersecurity. Wow. Well, how is he you think, how was he able to get away with it for so long? Well, he was not just the worst spy in U.S. history. Robert Hansen was our first cyber spy. He was a new, he is the cutting edge, the, the new leading edge of a wave of new spies, of a change in espionage. Uh, you know, every time I get up and I do a keynote, and, and it's, it's right on the, uh, the front page of my book, I say there are no hackers, there are only spies. Because hacking is nothing more than the necessary evolution of espionage. What we did is we took data out of paper in file cabinets, we put it into computer systems, and the spies had to get wise. Hansen was just one of the first people to realize that. You know, just as he told me the spy is in the worst possible place, he realized quickly that the FBI was computerizing at a rate that was faster than security could keep up. And that, this happens in businesses everywhere. You build an architecture of sharing information, and security kind of gets plugged on after that. He was like the bank manager who knows, knows all the flaws in security, and he just danced right through them and was able to steal not only from the FBI, but from other agencies who were networked into our systems. And so he was able to steal very quickly and steal some extraordinary intelligence, um, some of the worst that's ever been given to a foreign power, yeah. and not get caught because no one was looking. And he got a lot of people killed uh, at, at, at the same time. Um, you, you mentioned you, did, you, you do a lot of public speaking. What is, uh, before I let you go, what's, what's the question you get asked the most? Yeah, so the, the number one question I get asked is, why did Hansen do it? You know, we're fascinated, and I think we should be, with why someone would betray his family, his country, you know, every oath he yeah. swore as an FBI agent. Um, and, and why sell out to a foreign power that wants to do us harm? 
um, especially since he didn't make anywhere near the, the value of the secrets that he provided in mon- monetary gain. Uh, you know, I always caveat my answer by saying that no one uh, knows exactly why Hansen did it. He has steadfastly refused to tell anyone the answer to that question. It's the one little scrap of power he's kept for himself despite years and years of interrogation. But I think I know because I spent not only uh, eight hours a day for months with him in that room just talking, uh, there was a belief uh, among the case agents running the investigation, the Gray Day investigation, that Hanson was recruiting me to take over for him. And uh, so he was getting very close to the why, uh, because I think the next step would have been to bring me into a circle. And he started because he was broke, angry. He wanted to join the FBI to be James Bond. And it turned out that he had no operational, he had no field operational skills, and he was bad at managing people. But he was a brilliant analyst who could synthesize data extremely quickly. So the FBI made him an analyst, and that made him mad. He wanted to be yeah. an operator. And in his mind, he wanted to be James Bond, and the FBI made him a librarian, and he was angry about that. <laughs> he also had moved to New York City, and he couldn't afford his family and his lifestyle. And so he decided to become that spy in the worst possible place. Um, it was a way of getting back at the FBI for the slight he imagined, and also to make the money he needed to support his family, um, uh, albeit in a pretty criminal way. Yeah. And then after a while, he was promoted enough that he, he had enough money to survive. But the spying became the thing that made him feel alive. It was the one thing that he did that no one else did better, perhaps not even in history. And I don't think anyone's going to beat his record, because by catching him, the FBI was able to look at everything he did, mostly by talking to him, and fix all of it, and make it so no one could ever do what he did into the future. So in many ways, and it's pretty interesting, Robert Hansen, the worst spy in U.S. history, is the modern architect of a much more secure FBI. Wow. Well, the the book is Gray Day, My Undercover Mission to Expose America's First Cyber Spy. It's a must read. It's a thriller. You'll learn a lot. It's one of the greatest stories um, in American history, I think. Uh, and I've been obsessed with it for some time, so it's really been a pleasure to talk to you, Eric O'Neill, about, about this and, and everything else that's going on in the world right now. I really appreciate you coming on Weekend Warriors. Thank you so much. It's been great on the show, and it's, it's such a great opportunity to expand on some of this stuff. And, and thank you, Essie, for your kind words about the book. Oh, my pleasure. All right, that does it for us, this episode of Weekend Warriors. I'm S.E. Cup, and we'll talk to you next time. 